This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today we are very pleased to welcome on Grant Bledsoe, founder of Three Oaks Wealth. Uh, Grant, thank you very much for being on with us today. I'm really uh, excited to dive into the topics at hand because we as uh, third-party administrators and custodians of retirement plans uh, often get asked the questions by especially our small business crowd on, you know, hey, what do I, what should I select? Why should I do this versus the, this is this versus the other. And, you know, there's a uh, past IRAs. There are a plethora of different plan options and things that go into, you know, different strategies, different needs for clients. And, you know, really something that can be incredibly powerful uh, if done right or incredibly uh, uh, detrimental if done wrong. So I'm really excited to dig into that with you today. So if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit about a background about yourself, how you came to be in your current position, founding Three Oaks Wealth and the trajectory that led you to where you're at right now. Yeah, happy to. I'm, I'm excited about the discussion today as well, and I uh, appreciate you having me on, Alex. So um, <clears throat> Three Oaks Wealth, it's a financial planning and investment management firm. I launched it back in 2010 and came into, ex or excuse me, 2014. Uh, we've been around for about 10 years is what I meant to say. Uh, it, it came into existence because I started my financial career on the ins institutional side. Uh, I went to business school. I got a job. Uh, uh, basically a Wall Street trading desk type job at Charles Schwab, out of business school. I was there for seven years, had a really cool career, worked with really wonderful people on a good team. But as your, your listeners might be aware, when you work in that kind of environment, you're kind of chained to the desk and you often find yourself doing a lot of similar things every single day. I was also in San Francisco. And if you work a trading job on the West Coast, that means that you're getting up at about 3.30 in the morning to get to work at 4.30 and you get out at 1 p.m., which is really cool. Uh, you don't really have a whole lot of work after the trading day closes, but it still gets somewhat tedious and really cuts into your, your social life. So I, I had a great position at Schwab. I had a really nice career trajectory going there, but I, I wanted to help people and business owners a little bit more directly. And it appeared to me at the time that uh, if you're someone who's out there looking for help with your stuff, uh, retirement planning, investment management, uh, 401k plans for your, your business, tax planning. If, if you're just looking to, uh, for some professional help to make good decisions that's going to set you and your family up for your future, you probably want someone who is uh, a fiduciary, meaning that they have a legal obligation to put your interests in front of theirs. And if you ever think that they do something that, that benefits them before you, you have legal recourse to go out after them, right? That's one thing that I thought was pretty obvious. And you probably want someone who's skilled and experienced and credentialed, obviously, but also is going to charge you a, a fair and transparent fee. And those two concepts of uh, fee-only, um, transparent fee structure and fiduciary, uh, it just it, they, they weren't that common um, uh, about 10 years ago. Now they're a lot more common. This, this concept has, has grown quite a bit since then. So I, I resigned from my job in 2014 to launch Three Oaks Wealth um, to, to deliver just that. I didn't, I didn't really have the intention out of the gate uh, to focus specifically on business owners. That kind of evolved on its own. And as I went around talking to people about what we were doing and the services that we offered, financial planning, investment management, 
the people with more complex needs who really needed more financial planning were just your, your, your business owners because they have more complex tax needs. They're always trying to figure out when and how to take cash out of the business to pay themselves. They're, uh, they might want to save a little bit for retirement, maybe in a qualified plan or some other vehicle, which, which we can get into in a few minutes. And that just that was the natural course that uh, that the firm took. So fast forward 10 years, now we specialize in working with small businesses and small business owners, and, and we do just that. We, we, we do a lot of cash flow and tax planning, uh, risk management, success, succession, exit planning type stuff, investment management, and we manage uh, some qualified plans for people that are designed and aligned with whatever it is that they're trying to do uh, with their business vision and, and their long-term personal financial objectives. So it's a, it's a nice um, uh, niche. It's not the narrowest of, of niches, if you think of all the you know, business owners in the, in the country and in the world, uh, but people in that, in that position have specific needs. And, and personally, I just really get a kick out of the entrepreneurial process where you have someone who, who has an idea for a product or service that's maybe a little bit different or a little bit less expensive or a little bit more efficient than what's currently being offered in the market. They go take a big risk to start a company and offer that to their target demographic. And if they do that successfully in a way that adds value to their, their clientele, then it's win-win. It's win-win for their customers and it's uh, economically beneficial for the entrepreneur who took the risk. Uh, I, I just think that's a really um, beautiful system and I like to be a cog in that that big engine. So I, I get a kick out of what we do every day and that's um, maybe the medium length version of, of how we got to where we are now. Fantastic. So one thing you kind of brought up that I feel is <clears throat> is interesting that I run into uh, a lot of misconception with when it comes to people understanding what different financial professionals do is the distinction of someone acting as a fiduciary for you or not, um, which is an important distinction. Um, you know, a lot of people are under assumption that kind of anyone that works in finance automatically is a fiduciary. Um, you know, that's, you know, we had, you know, it, you know, I'm sure a lot, if you're new to this, you know, we do this podcast as an adjunct to what we do at Advanta IRA, uh, which were retirement plan administrators, which, you know, we don't act as a fiduciary, even though we hold funds, you know, we're not advisors, we don't get into that role of um, setting up and advising clients on what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, just because someone handles money or maybe administers assets or is involved with you financially doesn't always make them cross over into the threshold of a fiduciary, which is very important. Because when I talk to clients, when they need that you know, to get a little bit more help, you know, I mentioned that's like, hey, you know, find someone that maybe operates in a fiduciary capacity to you or that can operate in an advisory capacity to you. So maybe kind of talk about a little bit about what you saw in the marketplace of why you, you know, went into doing that and what people can watch out for when selecting someone to advise them on business or, um, and one thing that kind of, you know, is, unfortunate about the marketplace is people will kind of find different little ways to avoid being in that legal capacity. It's like, oh, well, you know, I offer financial coaching or I do X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's very important if you're going to be taking, um, you know, guidance or advice from someone to one, that they are legally able to do so, two, qualified, and three, again, having legally have to have your best interest at heart. So maybe kind of go over a few things of like what people can watch out for when trying to find someone in your position as to, you know, hey, these kind of people aren't or why we actually fill this need and, you know, how to identify someone that really is acting in a fiduciary capacity when they're going into advising you on stuff. Sure. Yeah. And 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 just as a side note on all this, this this is an issue because of the history of how the financial markets are structured here in the U.S. This, this role of delivering um, 
quote unquote, unbiased advice to clients is a relatively new thing in the industry. It's only maybe 50 years old, something like that. And the reason uh, for that is, is, is if you think of uh, the, the biggest employers of advisors they, in the country today, they tend to either be insurance companies or brokerage firms. And that's exactly why we're in the position we're in today. It's, it's because uh, brokerage firms exist to help companies raise capital and then issue those securities to the investing public. That's that's the role of an investment bank in a brokerage firm, right? So if you, if your company is trying to grow, you might want to go public. You might want to issue debt on the on the uh, debt markets. You hire an investment bank. They help you structure all that and get cash in in exchange for selling shares or uh, units of debt. And then the investment bank turns around and sells that to the public. That's what the brokerage side of their firm does, right? So <clears throat> that's why brokerage firms exist in the first place. But what the brokerage firms started to realize back in you know the 50s and 60s is they had to place all these debt and equity securities to the investing public. And now all of a sudden the investing public is asking questions about, well, you know, should I buy this one or that one? Which one's better for me? How am I going to do this and retire? Uh, and, and so the reason that fiduciary is an issue is because when your role is simply to raise capital and then sell those securities on the market, you have no need to act as a fiduciary, right? Now, the other type of seat that a lot of advisors will sit in is in the insurance world. And in the insurance world, you're in a position where you're maybe in the 50s and 60s, you went door to door and sold uh, life insurance policies. Legally, life insurance, uh, when you sell a policy, you are representing the life insurance company, okay? You're, you're not a, an objective actor. When you sell the policy to, uh, to a client, the way that this is structured legally is a commission for that sale has to be passed back to the rep that sold it. And so because of, of this, this history in the background and the legal structure of insurance and the, and the legal structure of the brokerage world, uh, th th there is no role for fiduciary in those seats. Now, the way the market is going these days and the way that I organized my firm and the way that a lot of firms are organizing now is rather than uh, being affiliated with the brokerage, rather, being, rather than being affiliated with an insurance company, more and more independent firms are registering as uh, registered investment advisors. And when you do that, you're, um, uh, you're legally organizing under the Advisors Act of 1934 and by law, because of that piece of legislation, you're required to be a fiduciary to all your clients all the time. So to, the long-winded way of answering your, your question, Alex, is if you're considering uh, hiring a financial professional and you want to confirm that they're, they're, that they're a fiduciary, you're right. Uh, there are a lot of people with different roles. Maybe they, they um, have a registered investment advisory operation, but then they also sell insurance and they wear a couple different hats. I think the question you want to ask is, uh, are you a fiduciary to me 100% of the time that we're interacting? And if I ever think that you're advising me in a way that benefits you before me, do I have legal recourse that covers all your advice all the time? But that's, that's probably the way that I would uh, ask the question. And if you really want to look into it, if, uh, if the person you're considering is working under a brokerage firm, they're likely not a fiduciary. If they're working under an insurance firm, they're, they may or may not likely not be a fiduciary, but if they're uh, under an RAA firm, registered investment advisory firm, uh, then they, they likely are.
Yeah, and that's a good point that you bring up is that, you know, when someone works for a wirehouse, you know, if you're working for Fidelity, Charles Schwab, you know, not to pick on anyone, but, you know, if you work there, you're advising people to buy assets that are directly sold or have markets made by that company directly. So, again, it's it seems a little bit conflicting to me to and when I it, obviously I've had my entire well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I've had my entire career in the alternative space, um, you know, not beholden to brokers, seeing people uh, go out and acquire things that aren't on open traded markets, alternative assets, real estate, and just the thought of you know advising someone saying, hey, the the best course of action is for you to invest in this one general asset class that's hey, also conveniently sold by my company that you can buy on this platform always seemed. Just a little weird. Not that it doesn't work for people. Not that people are inherently just getting fleeced left, right, and center. Um, but again, it just is always one of those kind of weird things that I just am like, all right, so you're you're supposed to be acting in my best interest, but what you're selling me is direct. What you're telling me to do is directly sold by the company you hang your hat on. Okay, little little odd. But so the the independent RIA route kind of being the next evolution of everything is what you're getting out of saying, hey, you know, people that aren't hanging their hat with a particular company that are a little bit more independent, that can be a little bit more objective with your goals, aspirations, and not be someone that's like saying, hey, you know, this is a great idea, while also having the store that sells it directly behind them that they have their office in. Fair, fair assessment? Fair assessment. And, and I, I don't mean to pick on any, any in, in the brokerage world, the insurance world, those are typically called different channels. I don't mean to pick on any channels. I know phenomenal, uh, trustworthy, excellent advisors un working under all of these channels. I also know really poor, crummy advisors working under all of these channels, right? And, and, and so this is definitely something I think you want to consider if you're looking uh, to hire a professional. Uh, but that being said, the caliber of the individual is, uh, in my opinion, far more important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I always try to, you know, guide people whenever they ask me for, you know, a question or something that's outside the scope of my ability to either knowledgeably answer or legally answer, um, you know, sit down and talk with someone. Uh, and I had this conversation with a, a woman the other day was, well, you know, I didn't really like this person. Well, then find another one. You know, just uh, I would encourage people to that effect. Um, you know, these things are okay to shop around with. You know, talk to some people. Feel comfortable with the person that's giving you advice first and foremost. They don't have to necessarily hang their hat on a financial firm that's been around for 100 years. There are capable people there. There's also capable people other places. So, again, just understanding that there's a variety of options for people out there. And I do like your point about kind of the independent fiduciary that's not as beholden to the whims of a particular large entity, um, I think it's definitely an interesting way of looking at it and obviously kind of how you uh, had the genesis of what you do at um, your firm. Now, from there, let's kind of look at, we've kind of understood, you know, the generalities of, you know, the benefits of kind of what you do. Now, as far as, you know, some things that you do with regard to the small business arena, um, that's kind of where I wanted to focus today, especially when it comes to, you know, trajectories, game plans, and also things that businesses can do to be successful in the context of uh, retirement plans and different strategies that can be utilized and kind of how to select those. So what are some things, you know, if I was coming into you saying, hey, you know, I'm a small business owner, you know, we have steady revenue, we have, you know, solid, you know, footprint of what we're doing, sales are good, we have good forecast. We need to start looking at tax advantages. We need to 
start kind of, you know, playing this game so we can keep more of what we earned and not just, you know, pay it out to Uncle Sam every year. What are some kind of things in general that you baseline talk to them about in order to kind of start making some better decisions in the future with regards to, you know, maybe choosing a retirement plan or not choosing one, I think is also a really good point to make because just because you're making revenue and you want to save it, having a retirement plan doesn't work for everyone. And specifically, there's not one size fits all. That's why there's a bunch of them out there for people. So let's kind of start at the beginning and kind of work through that a little bit. Yeah, the, typically the, the the place that I like to start here is is all, always with cash flow. Okay, so given your example, you have good revenues, you have a, a, a pretty stable business operation. Now you're, you're taking the next step and trying to figure out how to organize things so that you're paying a little bit less in tax. It still revolves around cash flow because you, if you're in that position, your future wealth, right? You you being able to do the stuff that you want to do in in life and in your career is a lot of it is going to hinge on the success of your business. And so we absolutely have to have uh, some working capital or an emergency a business emergency fund is another way to put that in in place first and foremost. And so where I like to start with people is if you have consistent revenue coming in. And then we take a look at your operating, your core operating expenses and make sure that you have enough liquid cash for a rainy day that just sits in a savings account somewhere to fund your operating expenses for somewhere between three and six months generally. Now, that that range is uh, pretty broad and it will it, where you fall in that spectrum depends a lot on personal circumstances and the industry that you're in. Um, I, I'm, I'm in the financial planning business. It's a professional services business. The, the, the chief asset that we have at the firm is the professional knowledge and expertise and, and experience, right? So it's less capital intensive. It's more people intensive. If you're a manufacturing company that makes like ice cream cones or something like that, then that's far more capital intensive. And it may be quite a stretch to save up three months worth of operating cash in a bank account somewhere. The whole key is figuring out what an appropriate level of rainy day cash is for you and just setting that aside so that it's earning a little bit of interest, but is there in, in case things go south in the future and you need it. And it seems some people, you know, look at that, maybe you're spending, I don't know, $50,000 a month in operating expenses. Well, if you, if, if you hear the number $150,000, you might think of, you might think that, holy smokes, that's way too much money. I'd rather have that cash working for me. What I would say is that, yes, that's true, but the biggest barometer of your future financial well-being is keeping the business open and staying in the game. If you can just stay in the game, the doors are open for you. The, the potential is basically limitless. But if something happens where revenues dry up and, I don't know, maybe a lawsuit comes in or something like that, if, if a number of bad things line up, one by one by one, you need that extra cash just to stay in the game. And this is really um, um, of primary importance, right? So let's say that you've got that emergency fund um, in place. It's in a high yield bank account or maybe a money market fund or some other vehicle that you're comfortable with. Now you have revenues coming in and now you're, you're trying to figure out, well, I, I have cash coming in. Um, I've got my emergency fund done. Now we need to look at tax uh, tax strategies. One of them that, that you mentioned that we can um, get into here in a moment is potentially saving for your own retirement, offering some kind of qualified retirement plan uh, for you and or your employees. Another one that we like to look at is entity structure. And the reason is that a lot of new businesses will start out as LLCs. 
And then at some point they will decide to either formally organize as a corporation or just file their taxes as an S corporation. The reason this is relevant is because when you're an LLC, all the revenues and the expenses are reported on your personal tax return on Schedule C. And I'm assuming that you're the only owner here. If, if you have partners uh, in a multi-member LLC, then it's slightly different. But you're bearing the responsibility for the taxation of the business profits on your personal return. So just take a simple example. Let's say that you have uh, $200,000 of revenue and $100,000 of expenses. At the end of the year, you do your books, you send them over to your, to your accountant, you have $100,000 of self-employment profit. You will pay income tax on that profit, <clears throat> but you'll also pay the self-employment tax, which is 15.3%. The self-employment tax is your contribution to Social Security and Medicare. So it, it helps you accumulate Social Security benefits. It's, it's what qualifies you for Medicare in the future, right? Well, let's take a different example. Let's say that instead of uh, an LLC, let's say that you make an election to file taxes as, as an S corporation, which you can do if you're an LLC. That means that you must pay yourself a W-2 wage that's uh, reasonable for your efforts in the business. And most tax professionals would would probably say that if you take 50% out, 50% uh, of that 100 grand out as W-2 wages, that would be sufficient. Here's why it's re relevant. If if you're now filing as an S corporation, you have $100,000 of expenses, and you decide to pay yourself $50,000 of W-2 wages, now the business has $150,000 of expenses. The $50,000 of wages are subject to the payroll tax, which is 7.65%. And you, as the recipient of that, you personally, as the recipient of that W-2 uh, wage, must also pay 7.65%. The reason those numbers are relevant is that 7.65 plus 7.65 is 15.3%, the exact same as the self-employment tax, right? So payroll taxes and, and your FICA FUDA taxes, the total totaling 15.3%, that's your contribution to Social Security and Medicare. So now in this going, continuing with our example, we've got 200,000 of revenue, you have 100,000 of operating expenses, and of the $100,000 left, you've taken out 50 as W-2 wages. You still have 50,000 left uh, at the end of the year in profits mm -hmm. that you can simply take back, distribute to yourself, the whole point of this whole exercise is that anything that falls to the bottom line as profits are not subject to those Social Security and Medicare taxes. So entity structure is something that we look at because if you're in that situation, you might be able to structure it in a way that reduces your Social Security and Medicare taxes just by filing in, in a different manner and structuring your own W-2 thoughtfully. Now, you might think listening to this that, well, holy smokes, that sounds great. Why don't we just not pay anything as W-2? Why would we take anything out as wages and take everything out as profit distributions and then skip the whole 15.3%? The IRS doesn't let you do that. If you're contributing to you know the day-to-day -day operations in the business, you have to pay yourself a W-2 wage. It has to be what's called reasonable compensation. And uh, tax pros will, will use um, case law and industry studies to help you set that. So you have to take some out as W-2, but it is a more efficient way to uh, to pull cash out of your business if you're trying to save on tax. And one final thought on that is that 
it does. So you do save a little bit of money on tax by doing this, but it also impacts your social security benefit accumulation. Because if that 50 grand comes out as profit distributions and is not taxed for social security purposes, that impacts your uh, future benefit that you might get from social security in retirement. So a, a bunch of different things to think about, but, but those, are, those are two of the areas that we like to start with. So what would be the applicable taxation rates then? Like, what would your effective tax rate be on the profit distribution? Would it still be subjected? Would it be subjected to what capital gains? What would or would it just go into your, uh, you know, effective marginal tax rate for income for that given year? How would that be treated as taxes? W two essentially that would just be active earned income filed on W two, uh, reported on W two filed with your ten forty. So at that point, what would that distribution of the $50 of uh, LLC profits be in that context? It's, it's considered earned income. <clears throat> okay. So, so just you, basically- You pay tax at the same, the same, you pay income tax at the same rate as your W-2. The only difference is that you're circumventing payroll taxes and uh, Social Security. Okay, gotcha. And but the the downside is is that you know let's you're still getting the whole hundred grand out, but you are only getting the accumulated benefit for Social Security and Medicare at the fifty thousand dollar pay rate. Correct. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Now, so that's now, yeah. different example. Let's say if you have uh, half a million dollars in LLC profits at the end of the year, then this makes this starts to make a heck of a lot more sense because you're only taxed on the first 162,000, I think this year it's 162,600 bucks uh, of profits or W-2 wages for social security purposes. Anything in excess of that is free from the 6.2% social security tax. But Medicare, you pay tax on anything with, with no cap, no limit. So if, if you take half of that 500,000 out, 250 is W-2 wages and half as profit distributions, you're still maxing out your social security benefit, but you're still, but therefore circumventing uh, Medicare. Okay, gotcha. And I'm assuming that this kind of, you know, basically like structure, and you know, this works with, uh, you know, closely held companies. If you are, you know, no partners, you know, pass through LLC taxes, a pass through, maybe again, getting into an S corp at a later date. But again, this is kind of small medium-sized businesses that typically work out because you're not incorporating as a, uh, you're not taxed as a C-Corp, you're not having a more formalized structure. It's kind of like, you know, from the small business standpoint, this is the general rules of kind of someone getting into that. And I think, you know, a fair example of $200 of revenues, 100,000 of expenses, um, or 150 of expenses if you're doing the, you know, payroll to then in turn do the profit distribution definitely makes sense. Now, <clears throat> it's all great to kind of say because Again, the whole point of this exercise is basically to look at, you know, it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. You know, if you can get away from having, you know, again, having to always look at, you know, how much of a benefit do you want in the future versus how much cash flow do you want now, which again, going back to the example of the rainy day fund, you know, you have to, you know, professional services don't need 150 grand of, you know, operating expenses, but the ice cream cone manufacturer, you know, just, it's a little bit, I should say, it's easier for one to get there than the other. Now, this, again, makes sense, again, on a high level, but now let's look at it from the context of maybe a similar example, or we can scale up depending on what type of plan choice. But, you know, I think we can all agree that reliance on Social Security as your main retirement benefit is kind of a fool's errand. Uh, you know, you 
could, and people certainly do, but if you don't have to, and you can be more financially independent, and that's really the reason that the IRS even wrote retirement plans into existence was to try to reduce the burden on Social Security, and they did this back in the 70s, in 1974 with ERISA, and have continued to do it throughout the years with different updates, different plan choices, and the like, um, You know, because they saw this 50 years ago that Social Security couldn't be the main support system for the for taxpayers. So let's let's fold into the mix some retirement plans here. So at what point would you kind of maybe choose one versus the other? And let's just kind of pick something. Let's pick a, uh, a SEP IRA. Let's pick the 401k. And then we'll get into some more of the, uh, uh, you know, the higher wage earner uh, options. Where do some of these things kind of fit in, in your opinion, into some of these examples of why you would choose one versus the other? Sure. So so now Continuing with our example, you're you're in a good spot. You've you've got your your working capital, your business emergency fund set up in a way that you're comfortable with. You know when and how you're going to pull cash out. You're comfortable with entity structure and all this. Uh, if if you still have more cash coming in than than you really need for business needs and personal uh, household needs, then you know yes, let's start dumping some into some kind of retirement plan because anything that you put in is generally deductible unless you trigger a, a, a Roth deferral or something like that. So th- these days, there are, I can't think of a single fact pattern where a SEP IRA is actually the best fit. Um, at least, well, I, I can probably make up a fact pattern, but I, I haven't run into any circumstances in the last five years where I've recommended a SEP IRA. With a SEP IRA, you, you have the latitude to make a contribution for yourself up to the annual maximum or 25% of your net self-employment income, whichever mm-hmm. is uh, lower, right? Yep. So if, if you make, let, let's say that your net self-employment income and, and what net self-employment income means is if you have $100,000 in LLC profits, you get to deduct half the self-employment tax and there's a, a, a slightly more complicated calculation to figure out what your um, annual contribution is going to be. If you're in that case where, where you have a business that's reported on your Schedule C and you're not paying yourself a W-2 wage, then a pretty good approximation is it's going to be about 20% of your profits. That's not exact, but that's an approximation. So if you make hundred grand, you can put in $20,000 into a SEP IRA. The downside is that if you have eligible employees, eligible meaning anybody who has worked for more than three years, for more than 1,000 hours? It's it's 1,000 hours in a given year or over 500 hours over three years with a five-year testing period. Thank you. I, it's been a while since I've looked at I, That's the one I, <laughs> I, I, I can peel that one off pretty quick. <laughs> so you have uh, the ability to exclude uh, some employees from participation for a little while. But if you're making 100 grand and you put $20,000 in for yourself, that's 20% of your self-employment income you're therefore required to put in 20% of all your eligible employees' income as well. Mm -hmm. And so it gets relatively uh, costly from a business standpoint. If you don't have any employees, it's a little bit more attractive. But the reason that I haven't recommended this in the last five years is because if you don't have any employees, the solo 401k is probably a better fit for you for a couple of different reasons. Yeah, I like Uh, it a lot too. Yeah, it's it's a great structure. And and I, I think where people get screwed up on this is it sounds big it sounds scary there is an extra hoop you have to jump through to open a solo 401k a solo 401k is just like any other 401k 
It's called Solo because you don't have any employees. When ERISA was written back in uh, 74, right, mm-hmm. Alex? Is yeah, 74 into effect in 75. So they, they wrote this uh, piece of legislation because they wanted you and me and everybody listening to this to save for their retirement. And so they enabled businesses to, uh, it gave businesses and business owners these great tax benefits for putting money into one of these 401k plans. But what they didn't want is for business owners to structure these plans in a way that benefit themselves far more than all of the non-highly compensated employees. So if you have a 401k plan, you have to do this uh, compliance testing every year or basically this balancing act to confirm that your plan doesn't benefit highly compensated employees more so than non-highly compensated employees, right? So there's a little bit of administration involved. You have to hire a third-party administration firm like, like yours, Alex, uh, to, to run this compliance testing for you and kind of maintain your plan and, and help you along the way. A solo 401k means that you don't have any employees, so you can totally skip that compliance testing. And for that reason, it's far more efficient and inexpensive to operate. And so with a, with a solo 401k, you're, if you're in that situation uh, where you're making a hundred thousand bucks in self-employment uh, compensation, you can make two types of contributions. Employee deferrals, this year the maximum is uh, 100% of your comp or $22,500, whichever is lower, plus an employer contribution, which is 20% of your uh, self-employment compensation. Again, that's an approximation. It's 25% of your net self-employment comp. Yeah, 25 NOI, yeah. Yep. So you're, you're... the, the annual amount you can contribute to it in, in a solo 401k plan is often greater than what you can contribute to a SEP IRA. And for people who want to do backdoor Roth IRA conversions, which is if you make too much money, you're no longer eligible to contribute to a Roth IRA. Uh, if you have assets in a solo 401k plan, you can pursue that strategy. But if you have assets in a SEP IRA, you cannot. Um, and I can share the technical details of why if you like, but that might be somewhat yeah. boring for some of our listeners. No, I, and, and I've delved into that <laughs> in some of my content as well on the perceived benefit. And I actually just did a kind of like a business plan choice uh, webinar with that. And I have an example of saying, hey, here's Jim making a hundred grand, just assuming, you know, a perfect world where we're just going to use the rough numbers. I mean, it ends up being, um, you know, almost twice the amount of money, again, not getting too far into like the actual like netting out the self-employment tax. You know, you can get that 22.5 plus your, you know, 25% NOI just on face value. It's going to be a little bit less. You know, it's going to be about 50, 55 grand under the solo 401k example versus the SEP. And the other benefit I like with that is that, you know, if you're looking for tax deductions, yeah, they both offer it. You can write it off on your taxes, tax reduction, tax deductible. The 401k lets you get a little bit more minute with it because you can claim a personal deferral of the election. And then also if you're, depending on how you're filing the taxes, also a corporate deduction as well, depending on if you're filing separate taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, from that perspective, you also have a very well built in Roth option if you want with the 401k. Granted, we did just have tax law updates with the Secure Act, although in the IRS's infinite or our governance is infinite wisdom. We still don't know how to actually do a SEP Roth IRA yet because they haven't given us the reporting codes, which 
is great in October now that we don't have those. But um, yeah, it's I, I definitely am kind of very um, in alignment with you on just kind of on face value again with the kind of the sole proprietor, the self-employed business owner on which one's going to kind of let you get to that goal faster. Um, you know, the SEP IRA, I see them a lot with people like um, like 1099 contract employees, like realtors, salespeople, um, you know, some people that just don't have the bandwidth for a 401k, even though they're not that complex, um, tend to gravitate towards those. So, um, you know, before we kind of get any to anything a little bit more complex, any other thoughts on, again, you know, just face value benefits of the solo 401k that you like? They're, they're, they're somewhat flexible. They're a little bit more... Um... I don't know, onerous to maintain. They're 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 pretty simple, but there there might be a slight bit more complexity to them than your SEP IRA. But if if you're if you're working with a professional, um, that's a good thing to delegate to them, figuring out all those complexities for you. And and like I mentioned, it's been a while since we've recommended one for for those exact reasons. Uh, if you have so, and maybe this might don't let me steer this for you, Alex, but th this might be a good transition into. If you have employees and are not eligible for a solo 401k, what do you do? Uh, your, your traditional 401k multi-participant, maybe with a, a safe harbor um, uh, status, might be a good option. But simple IRAs, I think, get overlooked a lot too. Simple IRAs are not technically qualified plans, meaning that they're not they're not governed by ERISA, but they're offered for free at pretty much all the brokerage firms and are not that terrible to operate. The difference is that you can't have more than 100 employees to be able to operate one. You contri your, your contribution limits every year are lower than they are in a 401k, but it's, a, it's an easier thing to get off the ground and your compliance requirements every year are, are not that bad. Uh, I have seen people operate these on their own and get into trouble with them. Uh, there, there are a few you know, nuances that you should be aware of. But for people that maybe you've got half a dozen employees, you think you and your employees might, you don't see you or your employees contributing more than like 10 grand a year. Uh, you don't want to pay out of pocket for a 401k plan, which is probably going to cost you somewhere between two and four grand a year to, to operate. Uh, this is a pretty good stopgap. And maybe that next step up from your solo 401k to now maybe have a few employees who need to participate uh, this is a nice stopgap between solo 401k and multi-participant big boy 401k. Yeah, and the only thing that I would point out to that, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I won't, I won't go back on all the, uh, the trash I've talked on simple IRAs. Uh, I'll, I'll be <laughs> honest, um, I, uh, I, just the, they're not my favorite thing in the world. But I do agree with you insofar as that they do get overlooked. Um, maybe I malign them a little bit too much to the detriment of someone that might benefit from it actually utilizing it. So maybe I could scale that back. But the only thing that I would kind of bring to people's attention, especially if you're listening to this going, okay, well, you know, the, the overhead of doing the administration for a larger safe harbor 401k, eh, you know, I still want to be cost conscious, but also I don't qualify for the solo. The one thing that I really like to make people sure they understand, um, you know, most of the time retirement plans aren't something you change all that often, but with a simple IRA, unlike really you know, with some exceptions to 401ks, you can't really make any plan changes once you've established it for your non-elective portion. So whether you're doing a um, salary match or you're doing a, you know, kind of a profit sharing match that you can't change that for two years from plan establishment. So when you do a simple IRA, 
just, you know, talk to someone like Grant on making sure that, you know, you really kind of get the nuts and bolts in place because if you do want to change something or you think you might have fluctuations in revenues or stuff like that, just making sure you're at least okay with a two-year lockup on really being able to change much with the plan. Yeah. Yeah, that's accurate. But after that, after that two years is up, you, you can yep. make adjustments on a year-to-year basis. And if, if revenues really dry up or something else, something bad happens, uh, you do have some latitude to reduce your match in, I think it's what, two out of every five years or something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there, there, there is a little bit of flexibility built into it. Yeah. It's, um, but yeah, they, they cert- there's a reason that they still exist because they still have benefit to the taxpayer. Um, and again, mm-hmm. I, maybe I should not trash them so much, but um, <laughs> to, the, to that point, you know, kind of like the next step. Okay. So we've, let's say we've kind of bridged that gap. They're not no longer a small, you know, small business owner. They've gotten to the point where let's say they want to add, you know, a little bit more ability to contribute at a higher rate um, than a simple would offer. Um, you know, we've kind of covered 401ks. Uh, what kind of options are there you know, to kind of bring this in, you know, to kind of to book in this with maybe the higher wage earners or people that are looking to really, you know, it's if you're making a ton of money, one, good for you, but two, let's not give it all to Uncle Sam. Um, you know, two things that kind of pop into my mind would be things like a defined benefits plan or maybe <clears throat> a uh, cash balance plan. So let's kind of, again, high level kind of cover, you know, you've, you've grown past maybe the 401k safe harbor and, you know, you're looking for additional options. What else is out there for people? If you have employees who are eligible for your existing 401k plan, uh, cash balance plans could be a good fit. Uh, we, we have a client who last year is, uh, and, and she's making, I think, low seven figures at this point, and it's got maybe a dozen employees, but she's structured her 401k and cash balance plan to enable her to put $250,000 a year in for herself. What a cash balance plan is, is it's uh, a qualified retirement plan. Your company adopts it just like it does the 401k. And you are agreeing to put a certain amount of either money or compensation in for you and your employees every single year. They do not have discretion over those investments. The money goes into an account and your company by adopting the plan is agreeing that the funds in the account that your your employees benefits are going to grow at a specified rate every single year. Let's call it 5%. So if you're going to put in $10,000 a year for um, all your employees, then the company puts in deposits $10,000 in year one, and then their benefit in year two is going to be uh, $10,500. And it doesn't matter what the returns of the investments in the account are, their benefits are going to go up by the rate specified in the plan. The reason that this is often beneficial is that you can, your, your third-party administrator who helps you design and establish this thing can create different uh, sections, different types of employees, different classes of employees, and your calculation for how much money goes in for each class uh, can vary. And so in, in my client's example, uh, she's putting in you know 200 grand for herself as uh, management and all the employees uh, got money contributed as a smaller percentage of their W-2 compensation. And that passed all the compliance tests, but it enabled her to put a, uh, offer a nice benefit for her employees and shovel a whole bunch of money into this account that will be shielded from Uncle Sam. Uh, the other option that, that you mentioned, Alex, uh, defined benefit plans, that's basically your, your tried and true pension plan. 
if you have part, uh, eligible participants, eligible employees, then that's a really, really heavy lift. And I would suggest that unless you're a rapidly growing big organization and you're comfortable with a really substantial multi-decade long-term liability, don't go down that path. Now, if, you're, if you don't have any employees, it gets really beneficial and really interesting because you can set up your, your uh, what's called a personal defined benefit plan, just like a solo 401k plan. And what you're doing is establishing a plan that specifies the amount of benefits that you as the only participant will be eligible for uh, when you hit retirement age. And let's say you have some discretion over what your retirement age is in the plan. Let's call it 65. So if you're 45 years old and you're making great money, you don't have any employees, let's say you're a 1099 uh, realtor or ER physician or something like that, then the reason this is called a defined benefit plan is because the benefit that you're entitled to receive at retirement age and thereafter is defined by the IRS. But your contributions that go into the plan to fund it every single year are theoretically unlimited. They're only limited by how much money uh, uh, ultimately goes into the plan to produce that ultimate defined benefit down the road, right? So what that means is that you have a ceiling of how large the account can grow to. And if you think about it, this is the exact opposite of your defined contribution or 401k plans. The IRS tells us how much we can put in every single year. We can't go beyond a certain amount, but there's no limit to how large the balances can grow within the accounts once you start investing them, right? So in, in the defined benefit plan, you establish this thing. If you're 45, uh, let's say that the aggregate ceiling to where the plan is fully funded and you can no longer put money in is $2 million. Well, that means that between the ages of 45 and 65, you've got 20 years to put money into this thing in a specified way, uh, uh, meaning X amount every single year, to get that plan fully funded to $2 million. And you have to hire uh, an actuary to help you figure all this out. And if the market crashes in you know year five and the, the uh, value of the assets falls a little bit, that means that you'll be obligated to make a larger contribution in year six. Uh, so there is some, some risk there, but it's a great way to put a lot of money away uh, in a deductible manner. Now, it, this is generally a good fit for people, as, as, as we talked about, without employees who are making really good money. And I don't really like to see these set up before you're 45 or 50 years old. And the reason is that if you're setting this up at 30, Remember, the, 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 there is a ceiling on how large the account can grow to. And so if you're trying to get your plan funded to $2 million and you have 20 years to do it because you start at age 45, that means that you can put in um, less than $100,000 a year, right? Because that's we're, we're, we're accounting for growth within the account too. If you stretch that out another 15 years and started at age 30, now you have 35 years to get to the same $2 million. It means that you can just put substantially less into the account every single year. So your annual deduction goes down the earlier that you establish this plan. So it, it's a really good fit. Again, if you don't have employees, if you're making great money in your uh, mid forties or older, it starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's where I typically see them as well. A lot of physicians, a lot of, uh, you know, highly compensated, you know, salespeople, you know, high tech sales, um, you know, medical device, large sales, things like that. <clears throat> um, you know, anyone with a, 
high degree of probability of maintaining a high level of income for a significant amount of time or the people that I see a lot of them with. So I think that's really kind of a good way to, to book in this. You know, I'm really happy that we managed to cover like the small business, you know, plan leading up to kind of, you know, some basic tax strategy of entity structure, how you can adjust payment to reduce uh, self-employment tax, then getting into, you know, small business plans, which ones do work, uh, you know, SEPs not being your favorite out of the bunch. And, uh, uh, you know, simple is actually having a place in life, which again, maybe I need to reevaluate. But um, I really do appreciate your time today on looking at this because it definitely gave me some additional perspective on looking at just the business side of things. Because so often I get, you know, hyper focused on, you know, what we do, strictly retirement plans and just looking, okay, here's the, you know, cold hard numbers of contributions. This is great. Let's plug it away. But again, to your point, this is a much more holistic approach. You really need to take a big step back, especially from where my position is in retirement plans, and look at what's the whole benefit to you going to be. You know, is a retirement plan even the best option, or is adjusting payrolls to reduce taxes because you need more money more beneficial? You know, this stuff isn't just a, um, you know, as much, as much as people want to say, oh, yeah, you need to have a retirement plan X, Y, and Z. You need to look at this from a different, a higher perspective than that. You really need to look and make sure all this stuff is a good fit. And I really feel like we covered a lot of good content today. Um, you know, with that said, is there anything else that you'd like to book into this with that you'd like people to take away from our conversation today? I think you just hit the nail on the head, Alex. Is is ultimately we need to take a step back, and everybody individually needs to figure out what they're solving for personally. What are you trying to do in your life? What are you trying to to do in your career? What do you need from your resources to be happy and content? And then make decisions that align with those intentions. And when you're, when you're in the, the weeds of your business day in, day out, it's challenging sometimes to take a step, step back and, and really see the forest from the trees. But when you do, either you know, if you get out of the office and do this on your own, meditate, whatever, or you go through you know, a guided process with a professional, the decisions that may have been eating you up that you were totally unsure about start to become very logical. And everybody is solving for something slightly different, right? The, 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 the SEP IRA that I'm not a huge fan of may be a tremendous fit for you based on your circumstances and what you're trying to solve for. And so when, when the vision is clear, the, the, the decisions become somewhat easy and the hard work is uh, really figuring out what that vision is for you. I think that's a great way to end it up. So if people want to get in touch with you, obviously, you know, you are a financial professional, as we've covered, they'd like to learn more, maybe engage you for some of your services. How can they get in touch, Grant? Check out threeoakswealth.com, um, all spelled out, T-H-R-E-E, -E, oakswealth.com. Uh, we've got a, a ton of information and resources on there. I also have a podcast of my own. Uh, it's called Grow Money Business, where we talk about this stuff all the time. And Alex, while we're still live, I was going to solicit you to come on as a guest because I'd love to hear uh, yeah. a little bit more about your perspective. No, I, um, I, I'm always happy to, uh, to to be the other uh, perspective on the alternative side of things. So uh, <laughs> once we button this up, we can certainly look into that. Um, but again, no, great. I, it's uh, it's it's refreshing when I have some of I've talked to several different advisors, but um, you know, a lot of them you know, tend to kind of take a, a one track approach. And it's nice to talk to someone that has a, a good basis of knowledge in this and also a good perspective to offer people. So with that said, Grant, I really do appreciate you being on with us today. This has been another episode of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies.
Want to hear more episodes of The Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.